Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome to Severed True Crime. We cover high to low profile true crime cases through a seven minute story, offer analysis, and talk pop culture. We are your co hosts. I'm Harry Chambers. And I'm Drew Hudson. Disclaimer the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the co hosts and do not reflect the institutions we are affiliated with. Content and trigger warning this episode contains details of abuse and neglect, violence against animals, domestic violence, and graphic details of murder and body decomposition. Listener discretion is advised. Please email us to say hello or leave comments, questions, or feedback at severedpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at severed underscore podcast. Leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Richard Kuklinski and Robert Prongay, seven-minute story in narrative context. It's December in the Northeast, and there are three certainties this time of year. The 5 p.m. hour marks the daily eclipse of light into darkness. Our cold breaths eerily form white mists that billow against the night air. And the presence of ice, a deceptive and sometimes stealthy form of malice. Winter comes silent. Its gnarled hands manage to weave crystallized branches of ice across our windowed reflections in a tapestry of frozen blue stems and petals, a solid and stoic lace upon our homes and doorsteps from which we retreat from blustery evenings with full moons and salmon-colored skies, the latter of which becomes a harbinger of more snow and isolation. Whenever I've been outside in the wintertime, I've always noticed and come to anticipate once bustling streets and neighborhoods go silent. I find silence between the snowfall. And there's an undeniable beauty to winter. Icicles appear as chiseled peaks and valleys that resemble a range of frequencies, snowflakes, whose intricate artistry is at once mysterious and unparalleled. I can't remember a time in which I've ever felt more in suspended animation. Winter is determined to slow down time, to slow us down, like a glacial effect. And it can be unrelenting, like fear. In episode three, New Jersey Urban Legends, we discussed fear as a byproduct of darkness and in true Jersey fashion, leave it to Springsteen to explain. Quote, some folks spend their whole lives trying to keep it. They carry it with them every step that they take till someday they just cut it loose. Cut it loose or let it drag them down where no one asks any questions or looks too long in your face in the darkness on the edge of town, end quote. Perhaps the it the boss is referring to is fear itself, but this time it's on the edge of Clinton Road. 
we find ourselves back in West Milford, a curious case of post-mortem analysis of song and eternal silence. It is May 1983, and despite the springtime weather, there's frost on the ground, so to speak. A body partially frozen in a wooded area that drew the attention of a cyclist and turkey vulture. And when those two parties are mentioned in the same sentence, well, it's either a bad punchline or a crime scene. The scene details are as follows, and if you're squeamish or would rather not listen, skip ahead about 15 seconds. The scene details are, quote, a cyclist stumbled upon a turkey vulture feeding on something in a black plastic bag. Upon closer inspection, it was a human arm. Flies and carrion beetles had long been feasting on the flesh as the medical examiner removed the plastic from the body. Only the wallet and family photos found on the corpse reveal the identity of the victim as Daniel Deppner. Deppner had been poisoned and shot point blank in the head. The body was too far decomposed to give any clue about how long Deppner had been dead. The only clue was when Deppner was reported missing, end quote. This all from mobmuseum.org. Another detail that ties this back to our winter motif is the other finding by the medical examiner. So found on Deppner's body tissue were ice crystals that indicated his body had been kept frozen. This is how Richard Kuklinski was dubbed the Iceman. The unmistakable pattern of ice crystals became a hallmark of Kuklinski's murders and a strategic way to try to evade what's known as PMI, or quote, post-mortem interval, how long bodies have been dead, end quote. This from mobmuseum.org. And by the time the medical examiner could assess Deppner's body, according to the Mob Museum, quote, Deppner's body was far too decomposed for any accurate biological estimate, end quote. Kuklinski, according to the Morning Call News, quote, allegedly stored one victim's body in a refrigerated warehouse, end quote. Richard Kuklinski, or the Iceman, was not as solitary as the snow. He was connected, like the veined patterns that form when ice freezes over. Daniel Deppner was Kuklinski's accomplice in the 1982 murder of Gary Smith of Highland Lakes, New Jersey, a community within Vernon Township, and about 25 minutes from the very spot where Deppner's stone-cold body lie thawing and decomposing in May 1983. Now we'll discuss more about Kuklinski's crimes and past in the next segment, but these slain Sussex County residents, Smith and Deppner, are a microcosm of the Iceman's callous and brutal murders. Kuklinski was arrested on December 17, 1986, after agreeing to rob a fictional drug dealer with an undercover ATF agent. For 18 months, Dominic Palafrone, whose undercover alias was Dominic Provenzano, and who looks like the actor Pedro Pascal for a visual, gained Kuklinski's trust, or Richie's trust, as he referred to him, as part of a joint mission between the ATF and New Jersey Attorney General's office. Polifron collected incriminating evidence from Richie, specifically his method for murder, lacing and or tampering with nasal spray, with pure cyanide, to poison his targets. This from CrimeLibrary.org. Quote, if cyanide is ingested, there's a burning in the mouth and throat, and the victim quickly grows dizzy and disoriented. And while it's possible to survive cyanide poisoning, it's a fast-acting poison that tortures as it kills. Often the pathologist doesn't know to look for cyanide as a cause because the pinkish spots on the skin are consistent with carbon monoxide poisoning as well. However, if detected before the body absorbs it, a bitter almond smell lingers in the corpse's mouth, tipping savvy investigators to cyanide's use. Murder by poison is usually committed in families or close groups because the victim generally must ingest it, and that requires getting close 
and even developing a bit of trust, end quote. Palafrone described Kuklinski and his first encounter with him in Crystal Ponty's a and article from February 2021. Quote, Kuklinski was an intelligent man, but it took me months to meet him. I was hanging out at a storefront where all the wise guys would hang out and do business. It was almost like Goodfellas. He was keeping his distance because he was meeting and setting up people from that location. And then those people went missing, and so law enforcement caught on. All they had was circumstantial evidence, so it took a while. One day, I just happened to be at the store. And the phone rang, and they said, the big guy wants to know if he can meet you. So we met at a Dunkin' Donuts around the corner. He wore these orange-tinted glasses. During our meeting, Kuklinski asked if I could get pure cyanide. Well, I almost fell out of my chair. You see, Kuklinski killed for money. He killed on orders from different mob people. When he used to tell me how they did it, there was a smile and some talk. I said to him one time, I kill people with guns. And he goes, cyanide is beautiful. Nobody looks for it. By the time they get an antidote, they can kiss their ass goodbye because there's nothing they can do. He told me that sometimes the mob bosses wanted the hits to look bad and send a message. He said he cut a guy's tongue out and stuck it up his rectum. Another time, he stuffed a bird in the mouth of a guy he killed. Others wanted it nice and easy, clean. That's when he used pure cyanide. The police tapes of Kuklinski talking about his murders were unbelievable. They were so graphic that the prosecutors had to redact them from court because they were too prejudicial, end quote. On the day of Kuklinski's arrest, Palafrone recounted the details. Quote, at this point, I had enough direct evidence and members of the task force were concerned Kuklinski might try to kill me. Richie and I were meeting at a service station to rip off some rich kid who was coming to buy cocaine for me. We were going to kill him and split 80000 Richie would go his way, I'd go mine, and he'd dispose of the body like he did other people, in a 50-gallon drum. We had two teams to take him down, one at the service station, another at his residence. They took him down at his residence. And during the arrest, they found three egg sandwiches. The plan was to put cyanide on one and feed it to the rich kid. Later, a lab determined that all three sandwiches had been laced with cyanide. He was going to kill me that day, too. But like he often said, he who hesitates is lost, end quote. At trial, the details regarding his criminal involvement with Gary Smith and Daniel Deppner would unfold. Among the archives of the New Jersey Herald is a brief article from December 18, 1986. This would be the day after Kuklinski was arrested, which outlined the murders of these local victims. Quote, Smith and Deppner were among five victims of then 51-year-old Kuklinski of Bergen County, who was charged with using guns and cyanide to murder drug and pornography dealers he set up and killed for the cash they carried. Richard Kuklinski was held on $2 million bail, bragged about killing Gary T. Smith by spreading cyanide on his hamburger, according to Attorney General W. Carrie Edwards, at a press conference in Hackensack. Kuklinski was also charged with killing Smith's roommate, Daniel Deppner, who had been indicted three months earlier in Hudson County on charges of helping to kill Smith by strangling him in a motel in North Bergen, end quote. Kuklinski, according to the same reporting, was, quote, charged with five counts of murder, six illegal weapons violations, three counts of robbery, and one count each of attempted murder and attempted robbery, end quote. During the trial, state witness Barbara Deppner, this would be Daniel Deppner's ex-wife and Gary Smith's cousin, testified in Superior Court that, quote, she knew intricate details of Richard Kuklinski's criminal life and that she helped carry out some of the crimes, revealing that Kuklinski poisoned her cousin and then laughed while watching him die, end quote. Paraphrasing Betsy August's reporting in the Record newspaper from February 1988, 
Although Kuklinski, the Deppners, and Smith were co-conspirators in theft or other crimes, another member emerged, Percy House, who lived with Barbara Deppner. He sent a coded message to Kuklinski saying, in code, quote, he was to send Gary Smith to Florida because he was very shaky, and if the cops caught him, he would send everyone to jail, end quote. Barbara Deppner decoded and translated the message for the jury. Basically, murder Gary Smith. And here's how the murder happened. Kuklinski brought hamburgers to the York Motel on Route 3 in North Bergen, New Jersey, room number 31, on December 24th, though some reports that I've researched say the 27th, and this occurred in 1982. And he laced Smith's hamburger, this clandestine burger without pickles, with cyanide, some secret combination of ketchup and cyanide. Daniel Deppner confirmed with Barbara by phone that Gary died as, quote, Gary had eaten a small amount, though there's conflicting details saying he ate most of the burger, and he had fallen back on the bed, and Deppner and Kuklinski were laughing because his eyes were so goofy. Smith's constitution was strong in light of eating cyanide that he didn't immediately die. So Deppner then strangled Smith with a lamp cord, and the body was placed under the motel bed. Reports from the morning call provide darker details of Smith's murder, that he was, quote, later found stuffed under the platform bed in the same hotel room, end quote. There were many occupants of the hotel room following the murder, and finally, someone smelled the decay. When the authorities found Smith's body, it triggered a four-year investigation that ultimately led to Kuklinski's arrest and subsequent trial. Barbara Deppner's cross-examination by Kuklinski public defender Neil M. Frank revealed that Barbara was at the York Hotel that day, but didn't see Kuklinski there. Now, Deppner's story might be taken with a grain of salt, as no other witness could confirm this. But regardless of this detail, it mattered very little to the outcome of Kuklinski's trial, because no one was willing to be a defense witness. Even Kuklinski's wife, Barbara, along with their children, left the courtroom once recorded tapes of the police questioning were played. They were in disbelief that Kuklinski could reveal all that he did and be so unemotional and matter-of-fact about taking a human life, let alone the brutal manner in which he carried out the killings. When Superior Court Judge Frederick W. Kukenmeister asked Kuklinski why he murdered his victims, Kuklinski said with a straight face, it was business, end quote. In March 1988, after a two-month trial and four-hour deliberation, Kuklinski was found guilty for the murders of Smith and Deppner. On May 25, 1988, Kuklinski received consecutive life sentences, about 60 years. His only chance for parole would have been around his 111th birthday. And surprisingly, he did not receive the death penalty, because there was no living eyewitness to the Smith and Deppner murders, and the manner in which the two men were killed could not be directly linked to Kuklinski's conduct. Kuklinski would join his brother Joe at New Jersey State Prison, formerly known as Trenton State Prison. And while imprisoned, Kuklinski suffered cardiac arrest and died on March 5, 2006, although some say it was under suspicious circumstances. He was to testify against the Gambino crime family. And as the Iceman would tell you, the victims he gave cyanide to all died of, air quotes, heart attacks.
In this segment, Severing the Case, we dissect three aspects of Richard Kuklinski and Robert Prange. We're going to begin with fight, flight, and freeze, looking at patterns in Kuklinski's childhood and crimes, two, the cyanide connection with Robert Prange, and three, the Iceman tapes. H, are you ready for this? We're going to begin with fight, of fight, flight, and freeze, looking at Kuklinski's family of origin and childhood. Fight, flight, you be the judge. <laughs> All right, let's go. So let's discuss the Kuklinski family for the Iceman in his own words to feel nothing for killing. This detachment or desensitization to violence started somewhere. I noticed some variations or inconsistencies in his attitude towards murder through his answers, and I'm referring to the um, Conversations with a Killer documentary, some 17 hours worth of interviews, in which Kuklinski said the following when asked how he felt about killing. Are there any murders that you committed that, that haunt you, that you just sort of, you feel and you do? Nothing haunts me. No murders haunt me. Nothing. I don't think about it. That's why it's hard for me to tell you. In order for me to be able to tell you when something happened, I'd have to think about why, when. If I think about it, it would wind up hurting me. So I don't, I don't think about it. If I had a choice, and of course you as already said to me, we all have choices. <laughs> Maybe we do. At the time I didn't seem to have one. But if I could have, I would like to be different than what I am. I would have liked to have been different than what I was, yes. It would be better. It would have been better for me. I would have liked to have had a better outlook on life. But I can't change yesterday. The follow-up question was whether Kuklinski was haunted by any of his murders. And Kuklinski said the following, quote, nothing haunts me. No murders haunt me, nothing. I don't think about it. That's why it's hard for me to tell you. In order for me to be able to tell when something happens, I have to think about when. If I think about it, it would wind up hurting me. So I don't. I don't think about it. And if you're interested, you can catch Drew's one-person show at the Orpheum <laughs> Theater. Richard Kuklinski, The Iceman Killeth. That's <laughs> so really the Iceman Cometh and Killeth. Yeah, that was a great reading. That was, uh, that was my best uh, Richard Kuklinski impersonation. That was great. A lot of Jersey, a lot of chutzpah in there. <laughs> I tried. I, I'm not Harry Chambers. No, of course not. So elsewhere in books and biographies by Philip Carlo, Anthony Bruno, and his conversation with Dr. Park Dietz, more on that later, in darkness, in dark secrets, rather, inside the mind of a mafia hitman, Kuklinski is quoted saying, quote, I beat victims to death for the exercise. Or, I don't particularly enjoy the killing, you know, I, I enjoy the stalk, the planning, and hunt much more. And I feel nothing inside for any of them, meaning his victims, nothing. They had it coming, and I did it. The only people I ever had any kind of feelings for were my family. Aww. The others, nothing. Sometimes I wonder why I'm like this. I feel nothing inside. I wish someone could tell me. I'm curious, end quote. Whew. Yeah. Imagine Thanksgiving at the Kukulski house. <laughs> no, you don't want to. So I feel like this reflects his ability to compartmentalize murder, to say the least, to control whether he thinks about it because he claims it would hurt him 
if he thought about it, which is surprising. I didn't expect that. His responses somewhat vacillate between total disconnection from killing and what sounds like suppression. And I read that he was diagnosed actually by Dr. Park Dietz with ASPD or antisocial personality disorder. And that according to some research, those with ASPD cannot feel love or emotion other than rage and some others, which makes sense in the case of Kuklinski. But I also remember reading from the clevelandclinic.org that ASPD can present differently for each person. So maybe Kuklinski feels a certain or limited degree of hurt, whatever that means. He didn't elaborate, but notice that he's saying the word hurt, not in the context of poisoning or shooting someone. But I would have definitely asked a follow-up question like, what does hurt mean to you? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, in that clip, he talks first about how thinking about what he's done would hurt him Mm -hmm. and then goes on to say that he would have liked to be different and that it, quote, would have been better for him. That's twice in the one response where he's talking about protecting himself Mm -hmm. uh, or doing something better for himself, right? So I think you can take that two ways. First, as we've seen with some other figures we've talked about on the show in the last few episodes, namely John List, we could take it as narcissism, which we've seen often in the cases we've looked at. He has no remorse or feelings about the people he's killed, but he thinks about what's good or beneficial for him. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we have a person who had, from his own description, a pretty horrific childhood and upbringing full of physical and emotional abuse, not to mention the trauma of having his father kill his brother. Yeah, we're going to talk more about that. So numerous sources online outline abuse in nearly all forms in the Kuklinski home of origin, his family home. His father, Stanislav, or Stanley Kuklinski, born in eastern Poland, was a brakeman for the railroad. And his mother, Anna McNally, lived in the Harsimus Cove section, or downtown Jersey City, New Jersey, and worked in the armor meatpacking plant. And this is paraphrasing from Murderpedia, the Conversations documentary, and Anthony Bruno's book on the Iceman. There were four Kluklinski children. There was Florian, born 1933 to 1941. Richard, born 1935 and died in 2006. Roberta, born 1942, died in 2010. And then Joseph, born 1944 and died in 2003. And before I go on, trigger warning, abuse content is ahead. Some sources attribute Florian's cause of death to bronchopneumonia. Others allege that Stanley beat Florian to death and that he and Anna covered it up. He made Anna call the hospital and claim that there was some accidental and fatal fall down the stairs. Richard died in prison of cardiac arrest. Roberta, no cause of death that I can find. And Joseph died under undisclosed causes in prison, though one source claims it may have been suicide. His father, Stanley, was an abusive alcoholic who beat his wife and children. In fact, he beat his children with a belt. And according to Richard, beat them for no reason. Some sources claim that after Stanley killed Florian, he abandoned the family. Other sources claim that Stanley sporadically saw his children. And when he did, he got drunk and beat them and then disappeared when Joseph, the youngest child, was born. And regardless, he wasn't really a healthy fixture anyway in their lives. His mother was a devout Catholic. She beat Richard with a broomstick to the point where it broke over him. She was often not at home, but when she was, she too was verbally and physically abusive. She was cold and unloving. She only interacted with the children to discipline them. I mean, it's a stretch to sympathize or feel bad for someone who is, you know, for all intents and purposes, such a cold-blooded monster. But you have to wonder how that childhood shaped him. Mm-hmm. Maybe that talk of hurt is still that repressed or wounded child stuck in there somewhere who needs protecting, who's still feeling that pain in a very real way. I'm sure it's not the case for every case, but I don't really believe that serial killers exist in a vacuum or are spontaneously created and unleashed upon us. More often than not, we see evidence of this type of childhood trauma in cases of people that end up doing these horrific things. Yeah, that's true. Well, the Kuklinski home life lacked support, kindness, respect, love, 
or any healthy routine to support the needs of the four Kuklinski children. And it was four children who were, to my reading, basically left to their own devices, Mm -hmm. but they were also subjected to violence and survival. So this disconnect from any type of loving, trusting, accepting, or even safe interpersonal relationships affected you know Richard's school life Mm. Um, as you mentioned it definitely affected him down the line he had no friends but he was bullied and it's really gut-wrenching how normalized this became for young Richard and probably his siblings so young Richard was shamed by his parents at home and then kids in the neighborhood in Jersey City they used to call him Richie the rag boy uh, hobo Richie or the skinny Pollock and this is from Anthony Bruno's book the Iceman the true story of a cold-blooded killer in our show notes So this affected Richard's self-esteem and self-worth, I imagine. It must have been demoralizing for him, and it really breaks my heart because as I was doing the research, I was picturing these examples. And I don't condone murder, but I think, like you said, context is important. And we see the effects of violence and abandonment and demoralization. And though not everyone who is subject to abuse or, or is a survivor of abuse becomes the Iceman, I think it doesn't mitigate the fact that the Kuklinski children were still subjected to abuse. And that is devastating to read about, let alone have lived through, and my heart really breaks for them. Yeah, I agree. Um, I feel like there are instances that you hear about like this where one would say, you know, like, this kid doesn't stand a chance. And Mm -hmm. I I think that's true here. I mean, of course, there's tons of examples of people who have come from similar terrible circumstances who have moved in the exact opposite direction, like really gotten their lives together and have become the people they are like in spite of their upbringing rather than because of it. What's particularly harsh about his upbringing, as it sounds, uh, I mean, is that you know he really had no reprieve from this abuse. Even when his father wasn't around, his mother was strict and abusive in her own cold way. The neighborhood kids taunted him. Again, it's not condoning anything that this guy did, but you could certainly see how both nature and nurturing were against him from the start. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's actually suggested that Richard was triggered by Stanley's abandonment or multiple abandonments. He subsequently dropped out of school. He only had an eighth grade education. And in his words, he took odd jobs to survive. And again, I think survival is an apt way to characterize life in the Kuklinski home and family. Richard got involved in bootlegging porn, theft, debt collecting. Can you imagine getting a collections call from a flat-toned Richard Kuklinski about a past due balance? No, I'll pay, I'll pay. (laughs) Shivering thinking about that. Totally. Yeah, and then... You ready for this? Organized crime. So as Kuklinski was reflecting on the early interview questions, again, back to the conversations documentary in our show notes about whether he was haunted by any crimes, I noticed that his body language changed. He was leaning towards the right in a chair during the interview. But as this question was posed, he started to look more off to his right hand side. And it's almost like he was physically uncomfortable or avoiding the question. Now, this is my reading of his body language, and I might be projecting or assigning meaning to his lack of eye contact because he's just so nonchalant when talking about his murders or crime in general. But I equate his thought of having no choice and this means of survival in any way possible. That was part of him becoming a killer, and I think that was connected to his early child abuse. Just the idea that he didn't have a choice seems consistent with how he saw his role in the Kuklinski household. This was a low-income household, abusive, alcoholic home with regular beatings, and parents who allegedly murdered their their firstborn and covered it up. Mm-hmm. And if this is all true, then I think there's a clear predisposition to violence as it was modeled in the home and maybe a genetic predisposition to antisocial or personality disorder. Um, interestingly, to interesting to parse his response he doesn't refer to himself as a killer 
in, in the language that I quoted before. Instead, he says, quote, but if I could have, I would like to be different than what I am. I would have liked to been different um, than what I was, and it would be better. It would have been better for me. I would have liked to have had a better outlook on life. What do you think? Yeah, that creates an interesting dichotomy, right? He simultaneously speaks about being unaffected by things he's done, and yet there seems to be a clear avoidance of it in the detached way that he speaks about himself. He could really have divorced himself from all feeling or haunting related to his crimes, or maybe after years uh, and years of physical or emotional abuse, he'd become an expert at bottling things up. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that was part of his rage, too, and just the whole bottling effect. But what's interesting to me is the line of, quote, I would like to be different than what I am in the present versus when he says, quote, I would have liked to be different than what I was, end quote. So in one sense, he still sees himself as indirectly a killer, but acknowledges it's in the past. What's clear is a lack of empathy or remorse for the victims. If his life turned out differently, he says, quote, it would have been better for me. No mention of lives spared. And then he wishes he had a better outlook on life. And I think this coupled with his thinking or feeling, and I hate to kind of use the word feeling referring to Kuklinski because I don't know, we don't know how much he actually feels or whether he's capable of feeling emotion or to what degree he does, but he had no choice. It possibly relates to child abuse, right? Um, I would have asked a follow-up question to Kuklinski during the interview, what is your outlook on life now? Does this relate to your childhood and what changed for you? And I just want to say this, and maybe it's strange to say, having watched him in this documentary, but I reread and re-listened to Kuklinski's words about wanting a different life and wanting to be different in his adult voice. But then I also thought about what those words would sound like coming from a seven-year-old version of him, and I think that's really heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of go back to what you were saying before, I feel like, you know, I would have liked to be different than what I was and versus I would like to be different than what I am. And I wonder if that could be also interpreted as, you know, what I am is mm-hmm. this cold bullet killer. What I was, I mean, he could be talking about the the criminal, the young, you know, kind of delinquent kid he was or what I was was this sad, abused, you know, child who took shit from everybody. Like maybe that's what he was saying. Like if I was not that as yeah. a kid, if I didn't have that upbringing, mm-hmm. maybe that would then inform, you know, what I am today. Yeah. Um, from interview excerpts I watch, it seems like his worldview, though, is definitely – you know, informed by a me against the world or a me versus them mentality. He talks in one interview about how um, one of his first alleged murders um, where he was insulted uh, and he frames the murder as a revenge killing. It was very much like, oh, you know, you thought you got one over on me, huh? Kind of ethos. I would imagine growing up with the kind of low self-esteem, not only from the actions of peers, but also from your parents, those people who are supposed to unfalteringly be in your corner Mm -hmm. would lead to this extreme defensiveness. Even when he tells interviewers, or in one case, a judge actually, that he killed people because, quote, it was business. I feel like his tone had a very exacting quality to it that went beyond feeling like it was, you know, quote, just business, but also that the person uh, who didn't conduct, quote, business accordingly had it coming to them or needed to learn a lesson that Kuklinski was all too happy to teach them. Ultimately, though, that purported you know, lesson seemed to be less about business and more about crossing Kuklinski himself. It's very kind of narcissistic, I think. Oh, absolutely. Great point. And I think his father's inconsistent presence in his life had an impact on young Richard, let alone the Richard that we know, the infamous Iceman. And this occurred while his personality was developing and could be a factor for his feeling emotionally and or psychologically detached from others. Some sources suggest that he went looking for his father on the railroad. That was really sad when I read that. Yeah. Just to try to see his father because he was missing. But this may 
or may not square with the fact that he also hated Stanley. He referred to him in the documentary as Stanley, right. very removed in third person. Exactly. There's no endearing name. Young Richard might have still longed for his father or maybe had this cognitive dissonance between the idea that a parent is, as you know, to your point, unfaltering in unfalteringly in your corner right. or a parent that's supposed to be a child's protector, and yet Stanley was an enforcer and an abuser, as was his mother. And I mean just the invalidation and disregard that they had for their children's lives, their innocence, their well-being. It's just gut-wrenching. And I started to become really angry at Stanley and Anna the more I read because I would just so much want to protect the Kuklinski children. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I had read also that Anna had quite the upbringing and, again, doesn't excuse child abuse at all, but in the same thing we were saying about Richard that, you know, you can see a pattern forming when somebody has such a tragic upbringing. Well, Richard weaponized his abuse, and then that translated into violence and infamy, right? Getting involved in street gangs around his teens and using violence as a shield. It became a self-protective defense and a weapon. And he saw himself, quote, going to war with boys his age and responded to bullying or admonishing behavior with violence. There's that retaliation, the revenge, right? right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the conversations interview that we've been talking about, he says, quote, I was no longer taking the beating. I was giving it. And that's when I learned it was better to give than to receive, end quote. And this is probably true of his retaliation towards bullies. But I think he was always fighting Stanley and his mother, no matter who it was that he was harming or that he was killing. I think it was always getting back that ultimate retaliation, which was towards his parents because he had that internalized rage. He aligned violence with control. He was no longer in a position to take a beating anymore. Instead, he was giving it, and that gave him a sense of control. No, definitely. I mean, I think there was a lot of projecting and displacing going on here for sure. Mm -hmm. The first experiences we get interacting in the world are from our parents and our family, and I think people use that as a frame for making sense of the world from that point forward, whether that's assuming that you know people are basically kind or that the world is a scary place that one has to fend for themselves or that one feels taken care of or seen. Yeah, and I thought about this while researching. So no reports that I've read, to be fair, indicated that he ever retaliated violently towards his parents, which I thought was interesting, and instead he retaliated outside the family. But that doesn't mean he's not subconsciously seeking to hurt his parents, as I mentioned before, based on his childhood trauma. Sources I've read online suggest that in addition to ASPD, Kuklinski was also paranoid or had PPD, paranoid paranoid personality disorder, and it's not uncommon or unrealistic to be hypervigilant and or paranoid about, first of all, living in a home where there's chronic beatings and certainly not right. feeling safe. Of course. If Stanley murdered Florian from a beating and all Richard and his siblings were subjected to the same violence, then wouldn't he also fear getting murdered, yeah. right? Mm. I mean, fearing and expecting beatings would probably drive anyone to feel paranoid, I would imagine, let alone whether they would survive the next beating. And all of this occurs from a child's point of view. I also wonder whether paranoia is a substitute for what we might perceive to be his emotions. So for example, when he says he would feel hurt or bad, is that him feeling paranoid like when he was a child anticipating or going through a beating? He seems 
you know, vigilant or hypervigilant about reflecting on his crimes and the possibility of being shamed or humiliated because they bring him back to his childhood abuse and maybe that state of paranoia. I also question this based on research online that refers to crimes or theft during his teen years. So he basically, he stole wine from crates belonging to a Manischewitz factory on Henderson Street in Jersey City. He said at the time that he felt anxious that people knew what he stole, but that actually wasn't true. There was no evidence that anybody knew about it. He likely got away with it and maybe felt that that was so intoxicating. But the idea that he sat with that paranoia for so long before then realizing no one's coming to look for me. Intoxicating. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Very funny. Um, speaking of yuck, um, you know, you'd think he would have learned his lesson about stealing after drinking that Manischewitz, by the way. You ever have that? It's very, uh, you ever had Manischewitz before? I've never. Sweet. Sweet. Okay. Yuck, right? Sweet. Um, he really picked the wrong wine to boost, as they say. Uh, but, yeah, you know, I think that uh, those are some interesting questions about his paranoia. I was looking up some info uh, on paranoid personality disorder from, again, the Cleveland Clinic's website. Um, and they define it as, quote, a mental health condition marked by a pattern of distrust and suspicion of others without adequate reason to be suspicious. So I don't know if that means that the paranoia is a substitute for his emotions as much as a consequence of them. Because, like, if we're mm -hmm. talking about his paranoia living at home, there's a reason to be paranoid. Mm -hmm. But um, paranoid personality disorder, according to this definition, says that there's not really adequate reason to be suspicious. Um so the paranoia might be that defensiveness that comes from fear of a beating, et cetera. But I also think it's what led him to his spate of, you know, alleged revenge killings. Um, if someone looked at him the wrong way or spoke mm -hmm. to him the wrong way, uh, you know, he said he disliked loudmouth people. He was unable to let it slide. He assumed people were out to get him or to get one over on him. And he just, you know, kind of couldn't be made a fool of. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think it goes back to how the way Stanley treated him, too. Right. Being sure. shamed over and over. Sure. Well, what gives further credence to the idea of cyclical or perpetuated family violence and trauma is when Kuklinski says, quote, I've been known to hurt people for no reason. If you check out my background as I came up, I could be anywhere and somebody humiliated me. I would think nothing of hitting them with a cue stick in an instant. And the only thing they might have done was made me feel bad or challenge my authority at the time, end quote. He said the same about his father, Stanley. Mm -hmm. He would give beatings for no reason, he said. As, as a child, Richard would get beatings from Stanley, no reason. The exact words used earlier in the interview. I thought that was interesting yeah. and something we should talk That's about. That's really interesting. And the shame-driven retaliation or humiliation makes sense. He, has, he had anywhere, or probably would have had at the time, uh, a lack of self-esteem, a lack of self-worth, all the physical beatings that he took from Stanley, but his mother's verbal abuse might have created this hair-trigger response. He's protected himself so much, I think, that retaliation is survival for him. And this notion about challenging his authority, his parents undermined his ability to grow any sense of autonomy. So if anyone challenges or compromises him, he reads that, I think, as unsafe and just retaliates. It's reflexive. What I will say is, along the lines of parallels, is the way he frames his air quotes emotions. And I say that because we cannot subjectively pierce the layers of Kuklinski even today now that he's dead. But he previously said he doesn't reflect on his prior murders because they would hurt him. And here he's saying someone might have made him feel bad. The question I come back to is this. Does he feel any emotion beyond anger and rage, or does he rationalize what those words might mean? Like, imagining how someone might feel bad or hurt, but he doesn't actually internally feel anything. Right. I also get a really childlike tone and expression to his language. Like, it made me feel bad, or I might get hurt. I wonder if 
even though he committed murders and he retaliated, he was doing so and, and creating this violence as a guy who's he's a big guy. He's a big dude, six foot four inches, about 300 pounds. He had an adult frame to carry out his childhood wounds, which I think is significant. His frame allowed him to be the adult protector in this physically imposing force, not to mention violent, that actually would carry out his childhood you know, emotions and trauma um, that his childhood self would incur and run away from. Yeah, I mean, it's especially frightening when you think about, you know, his, whatever the reason for his detachment from emotion, basically what he's doing is he's acting, you know, in a childlike fashion of, of behaving without any notion of consequence. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. to do that in a six foot four, 300 pound body is frightening, right? <laughs> Um, but I mean, it's really interesting. I wonder, you know, also if that's what made him, you know, a quote loving father or a family man, aside from his temper and emotional, though not physical abuse, that he launches his kids and wife. Yeah, for sure. And I love that point about again, he was acting out without consequences from a child's perspective in a larger frame. I love that. Yeah, and he didn't seem preoccupied with paranoia when torturing animals, though. A pattern in his violence towards animals would be to leave them in a compromised position where they had to either fend for themselves and detangle themselves, which they couldn't, rendering them helpless and at the mercy of death, or claw from the confines from which he left them individually or jointly tied. I won't perpetuate these stories of violence towards animals. As a dog owner, it turned my stomach. But I can make the connection between his compromising and then abandoning the animals because that's what Stanley did to him and the Kuklinski children. They were emotionally abandoned by their parents and left to struggle in a compromised situation between what they were dealing with, poverty, neglect, abuse, and endangerment, and having no way to help themselves, no way out of the violent situation similar to the animals. That's really interesting, yeah. Yeah, and they were actually, there were more brutal and inhumane examples of animal cruelty and murder. And this morbid curiosity to watch as he did, which maybe gave him a feeling of power to punish in a severe way and leave a defenseless being as is, unable to survive. It's definitely cruel. And I think he was carrying out this theme of power to punish from his childhood. Again, Stanley and Anna were the authority at one time. He was the inferior child or animal that he later killed. He never saw living beings. This is just my thinking. He never saw living beings or animals or humans as lives, I don't think. He seemed to find it curious or dismiss the fact that beyond flesh or fur, they were people or animals. Instead, I think he was far more clinical and devoid of emotion to destroy, devalue, and discard them as they meant or represented nothing to him. And when he worked as a contract killer for the mob, he took this detachment and monetized it. He found a way to weaponize but also monetize his childhood trauma. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'd say he monetized his childhood trauma, but he certainly found out from an early age that he could use violence to, if not make the pain or torment go away, then at least to keep the cruelty of the world at bay while, you know, ironically adding to that cruelty himself. He mentions in some interviews, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, that he was something of a perfectionist and he was trying to improve his killing techniques. It seems Mm -hmm. like these terrible experiments on animals uh, were perhaps an early version of that. Again, though, as you said, it's startling that he had already, you know, at that age, at such a young age, become so detached that he could just do these unspeakably cruel things. Yeah, and I consider the taking of an animal's life to be a murder. And so apart from other sources that I've read online, I won't say his first murder occurred in his teens. I found some conflicting information regarding his first human murder. And according to Murderpedia.org's timeline, in 1948, when Kuklinski was 13 years old, although CrimeLibrary.org says 14, so somewhere around there, he beat Charlie Lane to death with a wooden dowel, or what Kuklinski 
previously described as a hanging rod from a bedroom closet, the rod that you hang your clothes on. And Lane was the leader of a local street gang in Jersey City called the Project Boys. And this makes sense, as Kuklinski was born and raised in Jersey City Projects. Um, bullied and I believe previously beat up Kuklinski. So Kuklinski was retaliating here. And trigger warning before we go further, there's going to be graphic details of the disposal of Lane's body. And on that note, after he beat Charlie Lane, he, quote, dumped Lane's body off a bridge from South Jersey after removing his teeth and chopping off his fingertips with a hatchet in an effort to prevent the identification of the body. The body was never found. Other sources say Kuklinski used a wooden club and buried Lane in the Pine Barrens. Kuklinski then went in search of the other boys in the gang. He seized a metal pole from the trash and beat all of them nearly to death, end quote. I believe Kuklinski could murder at 13 years old, but the mob-style removal of teeth and fingerprints, I'm not sure that that squares with the timeline of his life. He ran with street gangs, yes, and there was mob influence in the area of Jersey City with the DeCalvacantes, the Genoveses, the Gambino crime families in and through Jersey City, but there was nothing biographically that suggests he was an understudy for the mob at this stage of his life. Now, the Confessions documentary timelines Kuklinski's first murder around 18. And according to Kuklinski, quote, he got into a fight in a bar. We got into an argument, a fight, and I hit him with a cue stick a few too many times, and he died, end quote. The follow-up interview question was how Kuklinski felt after he found out that the victim had died. And he said, quote, I had felt very bad, very, very bad. I was upset. I didn't mean to do it, actually, but surprisingly... I felt sadness, and after a while, I felt something else. I didn't feel sad. I was, I was sad along with some sort of a rush that I had control. And if you mess with me, I guess it's, if you mess with me, yeah, I'll hurt you, end quote. Kuklinski was a well-known pool shark in those days, and according to crimemuseum.org, quote, he was feared by many because of his short fuse. In his spare time in Manhattan, he would kill anyone that he felt had rubbed him the wrong way. He would shoot, stab, and bludgeon men to death, but as a rule, he would never kill women. Sometimes he would dump the bodies in the Hudson River, and other times he would just leave the body where it died. In later interviews, he said this was a type of lab or training ground, as you mentioned, H, for a later career as a mob hitman, experimenting with what he felt or what felt right, end quote. Yeah, um, I'm going to toss this in right now also, and you know, I'm, I'm likely to bring it up again, but you know, you kind of alluded to this when you talked about um, the Charlie Lane murder. You know, is that, you know, that murder was one in a long string of incidents that very well may have been embellished or completely invented by Kuklinski. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a handful of substantiated killings that he was indicted for and charged with, but the lore surrounding his murder career, hashtag lore, hashtag New Jersey myths, hashtag episode three, please <laughs> listen if you haven't, um, was quite extensive. I mean, just his alleged exploits with the mafia, right? This guy claims to have killed or been involved in the killing of Paul Castellano, who was the Gambino family boss that John Gotti had a contract on, and Jimmy Hoffa. I mean, the myth-making is interesting, though, you know, um, and can be seen as another layer of his paranoia or self-protectionism, right? Like, he's possibly creating a whole myth or urban legend around himself to make him seem larger than life. And, you know, in many ways, he's already larger than life at 6'4 and 300 pounds. <laughs> You're jealous. Um he gave I'm jealous. He gave tons of interviews, you know, for books and TV specials. I mean, in one sense, sure, I guess, you know, I'd be bored in jail, too, and I'd be looking for something to do. But on the other hand, this seems to fall into the narcissism category that we saw with John List in episode two. 
is Kuklinski a covert narcissist, uh, you know, or is this media blitz where he confesses to like, you know, a hundred murders or more, an outgrowth of his paranoid need to protect himself? The myth is another kind of layer of bubble wrap around himself getting injured. People are afraid from his actions and they're afraid from the story surrounding, you know, his actions and his you know, identity. I'm stuck on the bubble wrap part. But nonetheless, I wonder if he used that. I wonder if Kuklinski used bubble wrap. Uh, There was definitely plastic wrap, for sure. So this is a good time, sort of with those questions and the progression of his life, to pivot to the flight, because we're talking about fight, flight, or freeze. So flight in this section of analyzing Kuklinski, we're going to talk about him being married and then married to the mob. Mm. So Kuklinski was known for his raging temper, but in 1960, he met Barbara Pedrin, or Pedrici, as she... (laughs) Barbara. <laughs> Petrici, or as she was raised uh, in an Italian Catholic home, originally from West New York, New Jersey, with whom he would share romance and later marry. The problem with that was that it was an affair that they were having. Oops. Yeah. As Kuklinski was previously married to his first ex-wife, Linda, I had no idea before researching. Married to his first ex-wife. Yeah, his first yeah. ex-wife. Busy yeah. guy. Right. Mm-hmm. So I love some of the nostalgic and sensory details in Adam Higginbotham's article, Married to the Iceman, published in the Telegraph in 2013. Great yeah, it is. And, and I'll read some excerpts from the article that I think vividly paints their meet-cute moment. Aww. I know. It's so hallmark. Quote, Barbara first met Kuklinski when she was just 18, fresh from high school and newly employed as a secretary for Swiftline, a New Jersey trucking company. She was a clever, popular girl with a sarcastic sense of humor. Her idea of living dangerously was taking a flask of rum out on a Saturday night so she and her friends could spike their Cokes before going for Chinese food and a movie. That sounds so good right now. That's your ideal Saturday night. That sounds pretty good. Okay. Barbara wanted to go to art school, but when she accompanied a friend to an interview at Swiftline and ended up getting offered a job herself, she took it. Richard worked on the loading dock there. He was seven years older than Barbara, married with two young kids, but nevertheless, she agreed to go on a date or a double date with him. Charmer he was. Yeah, he was. Well, she said mm. the perfect gentleman. We went to the movies and then went for pizza, and he got up and played Save the Last Dance for Me on the jukebox. Mm. The next morning, he turned up at her house with flowers and a gift, and she agreed to a second date, and that was the end, she says. Are you writing any of this down for Mrs. Chambers? Of course, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, Valentine's Day is right <laughs> around the corner. Uh, okay, so let me see if I got all of that. So, rum and coke, mm-hmm. loading dock. Married with kids, movies and pizza, jukebox, flowers. Am I missing anything? Oh, um, and probably don't mention all the murdering. That uh, would be that would yeah. kill the the romance vibe, right? A little sign um, of murder. But he just yeah, he sounds like a six foot four inch, three hundred pound teddy bear. Why He's not? A softy. He really is. So the twenty five year old already married Kuklinski was attentive to Barbara, romanced or love bombed her, depending on how you look at it brought her flowers, lathered her with attention, and was always by her side. Jesus. I mean, I couldn't even get my laundry done when I was 25. And this guy was married and dating and had kids. It was a different time, I guess. Start your robbery career at 13. Kill a man at 18. Also, it's like this guy was inviting more paranoia with his, uh, you know, as the Jersey Jersey, uh, parlance goes, Gumar. I was always a Gumar. So Barbara begins sensing or feeling Kuklinski's control and isolation from her friends. And she tells him... She wants to see other people. Reluctantly tells him this. Yeah. So trigger warning ahead is relationship abuse and domestic violence. So according to this same article by Higginbotham, quote, Kuklinski responded to her request by silently jabbing her back from behind with a hunting knife, 
so sharp she didn't even feel the blade go in. She felt the blood running down her back, she says. He told her she belonged to him and that if she tried to leave, he would kill her entire family. When Barbara began screaming at him in anger, he throttled her into unconsciousness. The following day, Richard was waiting for her again after work with flowers and a teddy bear. He apologized and told her he wanted to marry her. He would get a divorce from his wife, Linda. He had threatened her because he loved her so much it made him crazy, end quote. Now, whereas Barbara candidly admits that she was naive about Kuklinski, she was also fearful to leave him. She described Richie, as she called him, as Jekyll and Hyde. What a surprise. Quote, there's the good Richie, then there's the bad Richie. This is from criminalbehaviors.com. She walked on eggshells around him, tried to predict his moods, but his outbursts were unpredictable over time. From the Telegraph, quote, after his first apology, he continued to be as charming and attractive or attentive, rather, as before, but also flew into rages in which he struck Barbara or grabbed her around her throat. Convinced she could never leave him, she agreed to marry him. This, their first child, uh, a daughter named Merrick, was born two years later in 1964, and, quote, the couple went, an, went on to have three children, Merrick, Christian, and Dwayne. Just like this show, right? Uh, but uh, less violent. There's the good Drew, then there's the bad <laughs> Drew. Unpredictable moods, outbursts. Are you kidding Prone me? to outbursts. Also, <laughs> Dwayne. Where the, where the hell did that come from? Merrick, I Christian, I know. and Dwayne Wayne. Do you get the reference to Dwayne Wayne, by the way? No. What is it? Uh, a Different World. Oh, yeah. yeah that's right. Dwayne okay, Wayne, now flip it up song. Okay. Yeah, anyway. my mind's on Kuklinski. It's not Sorry, on back, to Kuklinski, but that's uh, back to the ice. No man. problem. Uh, it's yeah, just sorry, pop culture. So Kuklinski had to support a growing family, obviously, and he, quote, tried to go straight and took work in a film lab, though this was overseen by the Gambino crime family. But after a while, he started staying late to print bootleg copies of films, first Disney cartoons, and then later, what natural progression, to pornography. Which, I mean, sometimes we see that crossover in Disney films anyway. We do. That's a different episode, <laughs> but unfortunately we do. Then he began making money hijacking trucks with one of his first big scores, a shipment of stolen jeans. He fenced for $12,000. So what did he do? He bought a new car, a TV set, and things for the house. Barbara never asked where the money was coming from, end quote. And the article continues timelining his return to killing for money by saying, quote, by the mid-70s, his reputation for cruelty and efficiency had spread across the United States, and he was kept in constant employment by the seven families of the East Coast Mafia, including the DeCavalcantes in New Jersey, the Gambinos, the Lucchese's, and Bananos in New York, end quote, and the Chambers family of this podcast. Of course, and uh, Drew Hudson, unfortunately, could never be made guy in the Chambers family <laughs> because uh, she doesn't like Seinfeld. I can't convince her otherwise. Unpopular opinion, I don't like Seinfeld. I'm going to get emails for this, by I the way. Thanks a lot. hate emails for I this. know. I deserve them. Kuklinski handled the, air quotes, dirty work for the mob families. He killed men who owed them money, revenge killed if any of the mob foot soldiers were slighted, paraphrasing from the Telegraph, of course. And when senior members of the families slept with the fishes, it was Kuklinski who dropped the bait. That's my own. That's a Drew original. Oh. This and his bootlegging porn was allegedly how he was linked to Roy DeMeo, who was linked with the Gambino crime family and ran his own, quote, DeMeo crew in the Gemini Lounge in Brooklyn, which was like a chop shop for dismembering bodies uh, or like Satrials in The Sopranos. According to Crime Behavior's source, Kuklinski was spotted on police surveillance at the Gemini Lounge, but that's the extent of the connection that we know about. So we don't know what's true, what's not. DeMeo allegedly used Kuklinski as a brutal enforcer because he could kill at point-blank range and not bat an eye. 
As reported in the article, quote, in 1979, Kuklinski was responsible for the daylight assassination of Carmine Galante, head of the Bonanno crime family. In 1985, he was part of the hit squad who shot down Gambino Don Paul Castellano outside the, or allegedly, as I've read, outside the Spark Steakhouse in Manhattan. Kuklinski even claimed to have been the man who did in Teamster Union, as you said before, Jimmy Hoffa, who disappeared without a trace one afternoon in 1975, end quote. H, do you have any theories about where Hoffa is buried in New Jersey beyond the Meadowlands or MetLife Stadium? No, I mean, I, like many red-blooded Jerseyanos, have heard that he was either made into a speed bump in the parking lot of Giant Stadium, excuse me, MetLife, Money Bank, Corporate Balls Stadium, or it was buried under the goalpost in the end zone. And, you know, judging by the way the Giants shit and, you know, and the Jets are playing this season, maybe we have a little Curse of the Bambino thing going on here. Curse of the Great Gambino, maybe. Uh, but again, you know, this is all claimed by Kuklinski, and I don't think he's a very skilled storyteller, at least in terms of suspending disbelief. If he just kept it uh, to tales of murdering these unknown people, the neighborhood bully, etc., it might be in the realm of possibility in some people's mind. Um, you know, but to go and lay claim to some of the biggest mafia hits in recent memory, actual mobsters involved in these killings have gone on record saying that they never heard the name Kuklinski, and no one, including Sammy Gravano, Sammy the Bull, the former underboss of the Gambino crime family under John Gotti, who ended up becoming a government witness, uh, mentioned Kuklinski as being involved in any of these crimes. Do you have a crime board somewhere linking all these families? You, you, you're doing pretty well with it. court board with all like, the string Yeah, they do. Between. The whole detective board. Uh, that's why my, my uh, Mrs. Chambers isn't allowed in the basement. <laughs> Mrs. Chambers. So I sourced both an A&E article on Jimmy Hoffa, the outlandish theories of his disappearance, though he was declared dead in 1982 with a missing body, and Philip Carlo's book, The Iceman, Confessions of a Mafia Contract Killer, and Kuklinski, quote, confessed to killing Hoffa and around 100 others, uh, end quote. And it's reported he co- killed 200 people but that cannot be corroborated and those within organized crime if, if you as you said and in law enforcement question the accuracy of that death count yeah i mean i've heard people say like you know he you know I, somebody was quoted as saying I, I wish i remembered who it was but was quoted as saying like you know i doubt he killed 200 people i doubt he killed 100 people maybe 15 like this is could be like very much blown out of proportion but we don't know yeah for sure and nonetheless, quote, Carlo writes that Kuklinski attested that he stabbed Hoffa in the head with a hunting knife after picking him up in a restaurant in suburban Detroit and was paid $40,000 to do so. He then reportedly drove to New Jersey with Hoffa's body in his trunk. The vehicle was compacted with the body inside and sold as metal scrap. He's part of a car somewhere in Japan right now. That's what he would joke in some of his uh, documentary interviews, end quote. And there are other theories of who killed Hoffa. Kuklinski has in the confessions doc cited that the specific way to dispose of a body, the whole crushing of a car with evidence in the trunk, would be one way. But what other theories do you have, H? Uh, about Hoffa's disappearance or about whether crushing a car is a good way to get rid of a body? Uh, okay, Hoffa. Um who knows, though? I mean, Hoffa could be anywhere. On another note, I don't want to make light of any murders, mafia-related or not, um, but that's a pretty good line. Part of a car somewhere in Japan. Jesus. It's definitely a visual, yeah. for sure. So Kuklinski carried out contract hits for the Gambinos, like the police officer Peter Calabro. Calabro. Allegedly, this was planned by your boy Sammy the Bull Gravano. The cop was scheduled to testify against the bull, but was found dead, how convenient, in his car with two shotgun wounds. I mean, you know, he allegedly did hits for the mob, but other sources, again, have claimed that Kuklinski had no mob ties whatsoever. It's hard to contest that when the events described in, like, these books, the HBO specials that are based on his interviews, Mm -hmm. are being relayed to, like, a deafening degree. It's hard to push back against that, but there's no actual evidence that his murders were affiliated with the mob, let alone these large-profile cases. 
I'm not, ex- I'm not an expert on the mob, but uh, you also have to take a blood You're oath. Not? <laughs> As she goes on to explain. My name oath. is Drew Hudson. Yes. That's all I'm saying. I'm not affiliated with the mob, but you have to take a blood oath to join the mob. And I imagine that in order to be a made guy, you have to do some killing. So how much did they contract out, I wonder? That's why it's much easier to join the Chambers family, where all you have to do is watch <laughs> seasons one through nine of Seinfeld. The, chain, the Chambers cult. Air quotes family. So anecdotally, Kuklinski would carry out mob hits and then return to his family. Why not? As if nothing happened. After his alleged hit on Paul Castellano, he watched his wife and and kids wrap presents for Christmas. Uh, He kept both lives separate. I don't blame him in that sense. Still, he was violent, though, in both arenas. Quote, during his marriage with Barbara, and this is rough to hear, so you might want to skip ahead. He blackened her eyes, broke her ribs, shattered furniture, and almost with superhuman strength, tore the fabric of the house apart apart with his bare hands. Often his murderous rages came upon him for no reason at all. They might have a wonderful dinner together. He would bring her a cup of tea before bed and then hours later threaten to smother her with a pillow. Kuklinski's violence against his wife caused two miscarriages and the children eventually began to intervene when they feared that he might otherwise kill her and quote this from the Telegraph. At one point, Barbara and his daughter, Kristen, with whom she now lives in New York State, plan to kill Kuklinski with, do you want to venture a guess? Uh, the Death Seat Burger from the Old Canal Inn. <laughs> no, but that could kill anybody. No, actually, it was good old-fashioned cyanide. Oh, cyanide, right. That was my second guess. I mean, they could have just as easily killed him with a Death Seat Burger. Just saying, less trouble. It's all the, the mashed potatoes in the burger, mashed like you said before. You, know, you got to go back. Burger. The episode three. <laughs> the episode three. So, obviously, they didn't go through with it as Kuklinski fed scraps of food to their dog, Shaba. But when Kuklinski began to fall ill and was hospitalized before dying, this is later when he's in jail, he told the doctors to resuscitate him. Barbara, however, kind of, you can say, arguably the best revenge, she signed off on a DNR. Do not resuscitate. She hated him, having divorced him prior to this, and ensured he died. She regrets not telling him what a bastard he was. I mean, that's just basic knowledge of how to get by in life, right? You tip your wait staff well, and you never piss off the person in charge of your DNR. Never don't with do your it. partner. You don't do it. Don't, don't piss do off it. Mrs. Chambers. That's all I'm it. saying. Don't. So as we move forward from fight, flight, let's get to freeze. Let's talk about the storing of frozen bodies, because why not? Because it's recording. almost Christmas. So it that. is, and it's definitely wintery. Frosty. So it is. So we don't need to reiterate how brutal Kuklinski's methods for murder were and how callously he disposed of the bodies, but I think his freezing victims' bodies was at once practical it created ambiguity surrounding the time or the date of the death but i think there's also a subconscious meaning to it perhaps the freezing reflects how cold and unemotional even clinical the killer is it's like a reflection of himself which let's be honest kuklinski wanted to be adored and remembered and i think there's a degree of vanity or narcissism that comes with this through his taped interviews yeah for sure like i mentioned earlier i mean you know there's no way you sit down for that many interviews and dictate your autobiography for posterity if you're not the slightest bit vain. Or record this podcast alongside Drew Hudson. That's right. So in the seven-minute story, I focused on the Smith Smith and Deppner murders because they related to Clinton Road from episode three. And I didn't want to be too biographical for the entirety of this episode, but those were not the only victims. And this connects with his predilection for freezing time and victims. I also think it's another form of control. Right. We talked about this before with this idea of power or to outsmart or narcissistically freeze time so that the victim's bodies cannot tell on him. It can't tell the truth and his savage crimes. 
it's impossible to recount all 100 murders or 100 plus, but the other three victims were George Maliband, Louis Masgay, and Paul Hoffman, to note. And so we're going to go over each one of them to talk about sort of the freezing and the other ways in which he disposed. So beginning with George Maliband Jr. and Kuklinski, they knew each other through the porn trade. Maliband was in deep shit, as they say. He showed up unannounced at Kuklinski's house one Sunday during a barbecue, which is a no-no. The Iceman always kept his family protected and sheltered them from any knowledge or involvement in his criminal activity. So Maliband pierced that protective bubble at his own risk because following their visit to DeMeo's Gemini Lounge, where DeMeo gave Maliband three days to pay all the money he owed him, this was gambling debt, Kuklinski was responsible for Maliband because he previously stood up for him. But following this meeting, Kuklinski drove himself and Maliband back to Jersey. And on the drive, Maliband desperately pleaded for Kuklinski's help in paying this debt and unleashed a veiled threat that he would end his life. He reminded Kuklinski that he knew where he lived. Big no-no. So when Kuklinski wasn't uh, freezing his victims, he was killing them. So he killed Maliband. He pulled the car over and with a thirty-eight unleashed five bullets into him right there in the van and when he didn't freeze he disposed of them in a steel drum but malabam was also a really large guy in frame and stature similar to kuklinski at six foot four 300 pounds so he couldn't fit malaban neatly in the drum you can see where this is going right therefore he had to get brutally creative let's say and severed yeah. see what i see yeah. what i did there yeah. Yeah. severed yeah. okay he severed the dead man's leg tendon so he could secure the lid to the barrel, so obviously flop right over the legs. Now, we're at the point where anyone who's not the Iceman might say, that's the worst of it, but no. But no. Kuklinski rolled the body drum-filled, or body-filled drum, I should say, from the Palisade Cliff, which is about 60 feet. The Palisades Cliff are about 12 miles of shoreline that run parallel to the Hudson River that runs through New York and New Jersey. But while watching the Iceman Confesses documentary, Kuklinski claims that he dumped George in Jersey City. This was January 1980 for context because the story isn't over after the dumping of Maliband's body or Kuklinski's paying off $50,000 worth of Maliband's gambling debt to Roy DeMeo. No. About a week later, February 5th, a building owner in Jersey City found the drum near the cliff. The lid was open and Maliband's legs were hanging out. Oy. Yeah. Maliband's uh, brother later told the police that his brother, George, feared Kuklinski. And so the cops were on to Iceman after this point. Now, Louis Masgay was also murdered by Kuklinski under similar circumstances about a year and a half later. And this brings us to our cyanide connection or Robert Prange and Kuklinski's meeting and involvement with the local Mr. Softy. H, how safe and savory would you rate New Jersey? Oh, I don't even lock my door at night. That's what the baseball bat in the front closet's for. You have a baseball bat in your front closet? Jersey, baby. I guess so. All right, let's talk about this cyanide connection here. Sounds like the rainbow connection, but really fucked up. Yeah, yeah, okay, I'll go with that. So in July of 1981, Louis Masgay was to meet Kuklinski for an exchange of blank videotapes. This from crimelibrary.org, quote, Masgay left his home in Pennsylvania with around $95,000, expecting a huge profit, who wouldn't, but he never returned. The only sign that something had happened to him was his abandoned van found on Route 17 in Bergen County. You've driven on Route 17, Route right? Route 17, premise. <laughs> 
The secret panel in which he'd kept the case in the van had been ripped out and the money was gone. Mazgay was to bring a rather large amount of cash to Kuklinski for a shipment of these blank videotapes. He'd already attempted to exchange with Kuklinski several times before, and each time the Iceman would stand him up. Mazgay didn't realize that this was all part of, of Kuklinski's M.O., basically to get his targets all worked up over some non-existent deal, increasing both the anticipation and the price each time. He was pretty slick. And Mazgay was the guinea pig, so to speak, for Kuklinski's air quotes on the job cyanide training from Mr. Softy himself, Robert Prangay, who, quote, sold ice cream out of his truck to kids in North Bergen, even as he was daydreaming or just dreaming up unique ways to kill someone. He was an army-trained demolitions expert who was highly versed in the art of destruction. He teamed up with Kuklinski for several de- deals in the pornography trade, doing hits for Roy DeMeo when needed. See, I feel like he would have been better suited to be a to be a line cook or short order cook at the old canal, making that burger. The explosive oh, no, demolitions don't expert. Even, demolition, don't even do them dirty like that. My no thanks. All right, go ahead. No thanks. So, uh, continuing on with the quote, one, quote, one thing that Prange was good at was using various types of drugs and chemicals to take a life, though he preferred cyanide. I mean, obviously. He taught Kuklinski how to put cyanide into a spray bottle, which could be used quickly and easily to take someone out. Once the poison got into them through their nose, they were gone. He even demonstrated the technique in less than 15 seconds. Kuklinski watched a man fall down dead in the street. Somehow, Prange managed to get cyanide quite easily, and Kuklinski never learned the source. Prange also experimented on other things. He wanted to know, for example, if a body kept frozen would foil the medical examiner's reading for the time of death. And if so, then the killer did not have to worry about an alibi, end quote. Storing bodies in the ice cream truck, the perfect crime. Hey, Mr. Softy, uh, I'll take one of those choco cyanide tacos and a uh, chip witch from my friend Drew over here. I get the chip witch? You stole from me in the script, because I say that later on. I just want to say that that's a Drew original. Oh, well, I mean, again, what did I say in episode one? Steal from the best. <laughs> it's a crime show. It's about. Do you remember yeah. ordering from, from ice cream trucks as a kid? Ice cream truck still comes down past the Chambers uh, Maison sometimes. Uh, oh, really? So we get the opportunity. But, yeah, I was, uh, I was more of an ordering from the stand of the town pool kind of guy than the truck. Is there really a difference, though? Uh, I think ice cream probably tastes better when mobile. So, yeah. That's so weird. I love it. That is so weird. I love it. All right. Well, like you and I, H. Well, like you and I. Can you compare us to like Starsky and Hutch or like like Frank and Dino or something? It's just like, no, like the two killers, just like us. Well, this is a, that's what the episode's all right, about, all right, right? All right? All right. So, like you and I, H., Kuklinski and Prange knew each other prior to getting into all sorts of trouble, as we're known to do. Kuklinski and Prange rented garage space in North Bergen on Newkirk Avenue and 70th Street. You could say this is their meet-cute moment. Do you want to write the mini-script of how it all went down? (laughs) Ryan Murphy, who we've already established, listens to this show. He doesn't. Might get an idea, and we might have another American crime story. We don't want that. Um, If you do it, Ryan, and you're stubborn, you're going to do it anyway. For God's sake, just let me script the damn thing for you, please. You're still pitching Ryan Murphy? I don't... I, I could do a better job is all I'm saying. The Watcher. Ah! Here we go. All right. Now, there's not much fun or comedy to be had in this story, but we can create a moment of levity. So let's each create a top ten list of movie titles that depict their meet-cute story. I'm positive you'll best me. I know you'll best me, and I'm looking forward to it. So you ready for this? Yeah. You got your list? Ooh, I like this. I, I don't know if I got 10, but I got some I got some zingers here for you. Ready? Right, okay. Go. 
Uh, okay, how about uh, when Icy met Softy? <laughs> uh, how to poison a guy in <laughs> ten minutes? <laughs> That's my favorite one. Sleepless in Secaucus. <laughs> Four stabbings in a funeral. And of course, the romantic drama of the Bridges of Bergen County. <laughs> No, uh, to to poison how to poison a guy in ten minutes. That's my favorite. Okay. That is the best. That's I want that one. one. All right, I cannot compete with your list and your your genius, but I'll try. Okay, so <clears throat> a match made in hell, frozen over. Here we go. So let's title their meet cute love story. This is Drew's top okay. ten list. Do it, do it. Number one, softy on love. <laughs> Two cyanide sweethearts. Three twin flames, passion from hell. Four, my heart beats like a steel drum and all that's in it, including George Maliban. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, five, a shotgun affair. Number six, I pick you and only you. <laughs> number seven, frozen, let it go off a cliff. <laughs> I like that one too. Uh, number eight, ice crystal sensations. Number nine, my once frozen heart is yours. And number 10, Cream Team Romance, a Hallmark original. Ah, that's cute. We should co-write a series on true crime murders reimagined as Hallmark movies. Yes, yes. What yes. do you think? That's that's what the world needs right now. <laughs> also, where the hell were you with that during quarantine when we had like two years and all the time in the world for this Nobody would have listened to me. They don't want to listen to me now. They're going to listen to well, me Well, we could have just come up with like these <laughs> scripts for these goddamn movies. I think it's I a good know. idea. Yeah. Pitch, pitch Ryan Murphy about <laughs> A little on Robert Prongay. There's so much to unpack. It's ridiculously good. So Prongay was born and bred in Union County. H, do you know anyone else from Union County? Union County. Union County. Probably. How about The Watcher? Ah, uh, The Watcher. It's all connected. Right. From Union County. So Prongay attended Union Hill High School, went by the nickname Bob, in quotes, next to his uh, yearbook photo. How original. Bob. Looking at his 1963 yearbook photo, he looks like a young Kennedy. He's wearing a black bow tie with a white shirt and white tuxedo jacket. Looks like an ice cream man already. Funny enough, okay. Yeah. Funny enough. Adjacent to his picture, his bio and facts too good to pass up, which is his name was Bob. He's an undeclared major, but part of the English club. These uh, English clubbers and majors, weren't you an English major, Harry? Uh, I mean, this is at one ancient time? history. Right? Ancient history. Very ancient. Right. And the History Forum, by the way. And also voted most likely to scoop uh, butter pecan later in life. You or him? Him. Ice cream man. I think both of you. He's a twin, which is scary AF. He has wavy hair like Drew. Happy-go-lucky. They should only know what would be in store in the freezer or the truck. Good looking. And I'm just going to step aside, H, when you take a look at this picture. So go at it. Oh, yeah. Look at this guy. A nod to his feature in ice cream sales. He looks pretty uh, pretty vanilla here. Oh, that's bad. Yawn F. Kennedy Bland. <laughs> James Bland. <laughs> you are so corny. So more on our boy Bob, quoting criminalbehaviors.com, quote, Prange was an ice cream man who did indeed have a criminal record for things such as explosives, <laughs> among other Jeez. crimes, because, you know, because yeah. what else like would you, you want from like your you local do. Mr. Softy, right. right? Ice cream with a side to blow your ass up. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'll have the uh, creamsicle with a side of C4, please. The uh, nitroglycerin snow cone. <laughs> By the way, Harry Chambers just wrote all of this in the script because I had something differently written uh, because maybe I'm not as funny as the one and only Harry Chambers. 
the banana kaboom. Oh, my God. And totally random, but my favorite ice cream to order from the truck would be a good humor toasted almond. Ooh, I love good. them. They did away with them. I think they discontinued it. That's a Please bring it back. I love tragic. the toasted almond. Anyway, Bob would probably lace it with ammonium nitrate. Probably <laughs> kill my ass. Um, and by the way, in preparing this very, very long script, I'm probably on the Homeland Security radar for Googling common explosives because oh, yeah, I didn't really know what they yep. were. Mm-hmm. But you know what this is, right? What? It's Drew Crime. Drew Crime. It's Drew Crime. Anyway, what about Bob? Bah. See what I did there? See what I did there? Don't hassle me, I'm loco. <laughs> <laughs> that's, my, that's my favorite thing. So, like Richie, so by the way, my brother's name is Richie. Oh, yeah? Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. And it's not Richie Gugwinski, but no. So, like Richie, Bobby was a husband and a father. Very scary. Harry Chambers in that category. <laughs> and now I'm terrified. Drew disappears after episode four. It all depends on if you're pulling your weight in ad bucks, pal. <laughs> you know? I'm probably not. I'm probably not. Also, because I'm dark, this detail is too good to pass up in the reporting. But, quote, at the time of his murder, this is Prange, he had been due in court on Wednesday, uh, August 8th, 1984, for the bombing of his ex-wife's home. Yeah. End quote. Talk about adding insult to injury. Yikes. So according to my research, Kuklinski shot Mazgay in the back of the head and Robert Prange helped hide the body or freeze the body. And paraphrasing paraphrasing crimelibrary.org, a witness claimed to see Mazgay's dead body hanging in an industrial freezer in Kuklinski's rented warehouse. But before it was transported and hung up, the corpse was likely frozen for a period of time in, guess where, the Mr. Softy ice cream truck. (laughs) It was the perfect place to conceal the body right next to the Rocket Pops and ice cream sandwiches. When Mazgay's body was found about two years later in Rockland County, New York, uh, and here's the best. It's close to the New Jersey border, mm-hmm. right? He was, quote, wrapped in plastic garbage bags, not bubble wrap like nope, earlier. Nope, nope. Oddly, he had on the same clothing he had worn that day that he vanished, but the medical examiner uh, thought the body looked fresh, and during the autopsy, ice crystals, here we go again, inside of Mazgay's body tissue gave away what actually happened. Yeah. Had Kuklinski only waited until the corpse had thoroughly thawed, he'd have gotten away with his failed attempt, you can say, at um, attempting to foil the reading of the post-mortem interval. When Mazgay was identified through his fingerprints, Kuklinski became obviously a chief suspect. It's kind of reminds me of Frankie Carbone from Goodfellas, anyone? Oh, Frankie Carbone. Now, while Mazgay's van emptied of the $95,000 remained on Route 17, where Harry Chambers drives, CriminalBehaviors.com elaborates on how he was found. So, quote, Mazgay's defrosted body was found by a park ranger on September 25th, 1983, near a park off Clausland Mountain Road in Orangetown, New York, end quote. Police realized Kuklinski was connected to the crime when Mazgay's wife told them that Lewis was to meet Kuklinski and, you know, the little details surrounding the frozen body that was becoming a thing now. I get the covert operation and the freezing time of death, but that's assuming, one, nobody sees a body hanging like the old 96er, and number two, a kid hops on the ice cream truck when you're not looking. Imagine that shit. Yeah, right. I mean, that's, that one's going to be hard to miss. Now, random but connected true story. This is a Drew story. True story. I was meaning to go to the Orangetown Classic Diner, which is up in the area of mm-hmm. where uh, Mazgay's body would be, mm-hmm. but now it's kind of ruined. That would make me hungry too, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. And now it's, it's ruined on me. So, note to self, don't order the ribs <laughs> and really pass on the dessert. Ew. Don't order the ribs. You would. You would. You'd eat the death burger and order the ribs. 
Anyway, to round out this section and in a similar fate as Mazgay, Prange allegedly asked Kuklinski to kill his family in a swap because they were so paranoid that everybody was out to get them. And instead, Prange was found dead in his rented warehouse on Friday, August 10th, 1984, quote, hanging out the driver's side door of his ice cream truck with two bullet holes in his chest, quote. This is quoted in the Jersey Journal in 1984 and then rewritten on criminalbehaviors.com. No evidence, though, that Kuklinski killed Prange, but this last story is, and it's all for you, H. So many parts that are your kind of dark story. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about... Paul Hoffman. He's the final. So there was Deppner and Smith and Maliban Mazgay and the final fifth victim that we know about as Paul Hoffman in his tagamet. Right. Do you know what tagamet is? Uh, no. Okay. So it treats ulcers, but among other things, heartburn, acid reflux, agita that I get from you. Oh, hey. So these damn supply chain issues, right? But anyway, in, ni- in April of 1982, our boy Paul was found without his antacids, let's just say. He didn't need them. According to crimelibrary.org, quote, Hoffman had been pestering Kuklinski endlessly to get a shipment of Tagamet for a cut rate price. And Kuklinski had nothing for him in actuality, but led him to believe that there was a shipment that was in. So Hoffman was to bring $25,000. Hoffman put the cash together and went eagerly to see Kuklinski at this rented garage in Northburg. And you know where this is going, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. End quote. I'm getting Silence of the Lambs flashback here, yeah, the whole yeah, Benjamin yeah, Raspell yep, yep, yep. unit. Mm-hmm. Counting, uh, so continuing on, um, that was the last that Paul Hoffman's family ever saw of him. Uh, and quote, Kuklinski eventually admitted to shooting and beating Hoffman with a tire iron. What happened here was that the gun had malfunctioned when he was shooting Paul Paul Hoffman and instead had to beat him to death with a tire iron. And then, like as I know, it's so bad. But he cemented the pharmacist into another steel drum. Here we go again. And, quote, pass the fucking tagament. That's horrible. Now, quote, Kuklinski left the drum with Paul Hoffman in it outside a motel next to, and you're going to love this, a hot dog stand in Little Ferry, New Jersey. Uh, Occasionally, he'd go have a hot dog and uh, see if the barrel had been uh, discovered. Eventually, it was gone. Apparently, someone had moved it. And to this day... Hoffman's body was never found. You've got Hoffa, Hoffman, probably in the same place. Probably. Now, the name of the hot dog establishment, you're going to love this too. It was named Harry's Corner Harry's. Luncheonette at 3420 Boardwalk in Wildwood, New Jersey. Oh, Harry's place. Well, now I'm going to have my fucking eyes peeled next time we go to Rutz <laughs> Hut in the parking lot. Especially in the parking lot. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if Hoffa and Hoffman were buried somewhere right. there. But, I mean, the parallels are endless. You love hot dogs. You're wearing a hot dog baseball cap right hot now that I hat. bought you for Harry Chambers' birthday. We are, we are on the eve of Harry Chambers' birthday. We're recording in December. That's all I'm going to say. So yeah. you're wearing your hot dog hat that I hot got dog you. Hat. Uh, your name is Harry. Harry's still serving. Harry's was still serving as an establishment in 2019. I do have one insignificant question, though, for you, if you can answer it here, which is, what does one do with a full or heavy drum? Do they just roll off with it? How the hell did it just disappear into nowhere? I mean, I would imagine we're talking about some type of, like, circus person, possibly even like a Cirque du Soleil person. Uh, you know, someone standing on the barrel, rolling it down the street, oh, bouncing on oh. it, etc. And also, just for our listeners to get a mental image, I'm wearing a, a baseball cap from a hot dog place. I'm not wearing like a giant stuffed hot dog, like like the way the cheese heads in Wisconsin with those hats. I'm not wearing a hot dog shaped hat <laughs> in case that's what you're... Or if you prefer picturing that, I'm wearing a hot dog <laughs> shaped hat. That would be easy yeah. to picture for right. you because it just fits your personality. Right. So if there's a new hot dog on the menu, don't eat it. 
All I'm saying is, if Kuklinski was a regular, Harry's Corner Luncheonette would name a dog after him. What do you What do you think the, the name of the dog would be? Hmm. The Chili Dog. Yeah, Burr. the Chili Dog. You see what <laughs> I did there? You can wash your dog down with an ice called Pepsi and a tag of it for that pesky heartburn. I spent too much time researching this case. You can tell. You know, if they had this at Rut's Hut, they would call it the Jack the Ripper. I love Ew. that. That is genius. I love it. And I'm starving. I can go mm. for that right now. Oh, yeah. So with that being said, poor all of his victims for sure. Let's switch over to the Iceman tapes. In typical Drew crime fashion, I went all in. I watched the Iceman immersion pack on YouTube. I'll never be the same. I think I've aged 20 years in a week. Holy shit. You watched all of it. I did. Okay. I'm going to have to teach you about (laughs) self-love. So I've learned more about the Iceman than I've learned about myself in 40 plus years now. So towards the end of the conversations interview conducted by HBO in 1991, Kuklinski holds back tears. Hmm. He seems to exhibit remorse for hurting his family and call me crazy, but I do believe the emotion that he's exhibiting. His expression seemed authentic to me as many times as I rewatched it. I believe that he knew he harmed his family. He caused great suffering and violence towards them, and that is up to them to forgive or not. I don't condone domestic violence, murder, but I have to say I do feel empathy for Kuklinski and his family. I think he probably feels some sorrow later in age or at the time he was recording this reflecting on his life and where he is without his family and i think he's capable of some empathy or something that seems like it right but he's learned how to also disconnect and detach from wanting needing trusting loving and instead fearing most everyone he's ever known uh, of his family of origin and i think in no way um and there is no way i think to raise a child in that way i think that's that's wholly horrible uh, i do not blame kuklinski as a child for growing up in that abusive invalidating and inhumane household i just want to say that much because i do have empathy for him but he did turn out to be a notorious killer and i understand that and that's what he had to live with during his life and his family still has to live with but i do believe he felt love and warmth for the first time i think as he put it in his interview he felt the most secure when he was at home and and married and had children and i think the counter argument to my feeling empathy would be that his motive is to charm and keep the cameras rolling on him as we talked about before that celebritizing uh, right. feeling and shaping a narrative that paints him in a notorious life and i totally understand that that's probably true but I don't think it subtracts from the possibility that he's speaking at least one truth and that maybe for all the wrong that he's done to his family, not his murders, I think he separates that, he's perhaps remorseful about hurting his family. He might recognize that what he's done to them in a human way, human emotions might not be accessible to him, but that he's detached. But I think he realizes the boy within him who was, you know, was abused all his life, learned the difference finally by having a loving family that he created with Barbara. He learned the difference between abuse and love. And that was learned through his own family that he referred to as loosely paraphrasing an accomplishment for him in his life. And I think the range of emotions that came over as an otherwise stoic Iceman and just his chilling presence, his chin quivered at the time when he was talking about this during the interview, the corners of his eyes glistened, I noticed. He showed his teeth in almost like uh, just a kind of growl to hold back tears. That, to me, was authentic. And if I'm fooled by a charming psychopath, then it wouldn't probably be the first time in my life. Right. I mean, like, that's basically my motive with the podcast. I'm just charming our (laughs) listeners one episode at a time into a false sense of security. Totally authentic chambers is what these folks are getting. The genuine article 
Wink, wink. I think we'll have to hear from them to be sure of that. Okay. So in the Iceman Confesses, Kuklinski is back to, and this is the, I think the last interview that he did with Dr. Park Dietz, as I mentioned before, but he actually reverted back to, instead of being, you know, so candid about everything, his dead-eyed Richard self, who speaks in a threatening tone that I think is more defensive than anything. He says, quote, loudmouth people remind him of his father, Stanley, end quote, so you better watch out, H. Oh. Yeah. He lit a guy's car on fire just for annoying him. And do you know I've actually witnessed something like this before? And it's not something that you get out of your head. That I did not know. So we'll have to talk about that later uh, off air. But I mean, listen, I'm I'm a loud talker and a motor mouth. That's very different from being a loud mouth. I don't think that technicality would would spare you mm. anything with the, with the Iceman. But you know what else I can't get out of my head? What? The Iceman recalling how he went dancing in a canary yellow sweater Bright pants, platform shoes in a discotheque. Yeah. Dancing and trying to kill someone with a specific needle. The injectable was, in his words, quote, a heart attack, as he said it. And that will live rent-free in my head till probably the next episode. And here you are trying to besmirch my hot dog hat. <laughs> you know what else I can't get out of my head? That you watched all of this shit. Oh, I yeah. mean, I did my homework here, but you're on your own astral plane of self-torture. You do your own homework? For the outline? I mean, now. So once again, it's Drew crime. It's serious. Look, I'm all in when I do this stuff. So let's pivot to the Iceman and psychiatrist, this Dr. Park Dietz in 2002. That's when the interview occurred. And it seems like this interview was a natural progression from the Confessions interview, as I mentioned, in 1991, that was somewhat revealing. I think it was more biographical. But I think Dietz helps frame Kuklinski's childhood experiences and the relationship to his ability to kill. And I think the other in-between interview that he did, it, it was the Iceman Confessions, I, or I, Iceman Confesses. I think right. it was just recycled interviews and content. I mm -hmm. don't think it really added anything. Probably. But anyway, in the interview with Dr. Dietz, Kuklinski strikes me as, as I said before, colder, more clinical in his answers, and his eyes are somehow darker, more defensive. The camera for this interview was positioned closer to him and over the left shoulder of Dr. Dietz, so it gave us a much more intimate shot of the two of them. And listening to this interview, I think the more chilling answer that he gave, because everyone points to the famous line in this interview of, you, you, you know, you made me mad just now, like right. as if he's going to yeah. kill Dr. Dietz, is, you know, how beyond the death glaze in the eyes of his victims, he actually saw his reflection. I right. thought that was the most chilling mm -hmm. response that came out of that interview, that his victims would see him as the last image in their eternity, for all eternity, whatever that means. Yeah. And interesting to see Kuklinski get annoyed at someone challenging his thoughts, but it was, it was when Dr. Dietz asked him whether killing the rowdy Georgia boys in the van was a capital offense. And Kuklinski felt judged by that question. And I think that reflexive instinct to defend himself, that's why he got so much ire, just so, so much anger in that moment, and maybe masked possible insecurity and invalidation that he felt as a child with some level of anger. Either way, it's still with him. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I wonder if the difference just had to do with the time that had passed or if he just, like, vibed differently with his interviewer versus the last one. Or, you know, maybe it's his pr uh, paranoid personality disorder kicking into high gear since now he's kind of being analyzed more than interviewed because he's at talking to an actual um, psychiatrist, right? Yeah, probably probably put on more of the defensive. I know I was. Yeah. Um, and to round all of this out in terms of the segment before pop culture, I have to tell you this. I was struck 
by the coldness in his eyes in this interview and the way his eyes restricted reminded me of like a snake he definitely to my read had more of a guard up than previous interviews but I think he was genuinely curious about why he was the way that he was so aside from the clinical terms of ASPD and PPD and embody these co-occurring disorders, he likely had to know, in my view, that his parents were a primary reason for his life path, right? I, I don't know so. if, yeah, I don't know if someone like Kuklinski could change the course of his life with autonomy. I, I'm not sure of that. And I think he was far too entrenched in survival or financial survival to change that in all the killing that he did for himself and, and the mob. Yeah, interesting. Segment three, Pop Culture, The Iceman, the film from 2012. Moses are red, violets are blue. My Annabelle is as golden as the light of the moon. <laughs> What's this? You think I'm a spoiled brat? I like to be taken care of. There's nothing wrong with that. I like the way you take care of me. You're a family man now? A wife? Kids, who are you kidding? Closing the lab. Sorry, but you're out of a job. You follow orders, you got everything to gain. If you don't have it in you, now's the time to say it. leaving witnesses at a murder scene. I don't kill women or children. I have loose ends now. All right, kids, that's it. Go on home. We're closed. You got a second? So is it my lucky day or my last? I want to be my partner. You take care of the details. I do the hit. Might as well look out for each other, right? You're doing hits behind my back? can imagine what you've been telling them, thinking their dad's a decent guy. I'm really proud of you, Richie. Our paths cross again. I'm gonna bury your whole family. Dad? Have you seen it? I have not seen it. I've seen, like, pieces of it and, like, trailers for it, but I have not seen it. So you didn't do your homework for this outline? Listen, I read... <laughs> We can't all torture ourselves like you, Andrew. No, I'm Andrew. <laughs> Listen, we can't. We can't all. You're you're sacrificing yourself for the good of our listeners. I appreciate it. I appreciate you, but hashtag self care. I can't. I can't do it. Can we keep that recording of I appreciate? Because I don't hear that. Oh too shit! Often. Now, yeah. Fine. Now you got to really put okay. that in. All there. All right. Yep. Yep. Can we save that? Now all you have to do is learn how to edit, so you can save that somewhere. <laughs> I I'll have learn. The files. I'll <laughs> learn. That's right. true. So overall, talking about, I watched this film too. Aside from the immersion back, because you know, <laughs> you had a busy couple weeks. I I really did, and we had a shorter week to turn around a script because 
It's Harry's birthday, so could we make him record Coming up. on a Friday? Coming up. No. Mm. So overall, accurate without being over the top, I think, in key moments. The film was good. I think um, maybe the killing montage in the first 20 to 22 minutes, maybe a little Matrixy in appearance with the over-the-shoulder rooftop kill, which actually happened in real life. And he talks about it in some of the interviews in the immersion pack that I spent plenty of hours with yeah. the Iceman. Um, pacing of the film was concise, I thought, and hit on milestones in Kuklinski's life. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard that it portrays Kuklinski kind of sympathetically. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more accurately. I don't know about sympathetically, but I think accurately. What I will say is that Michael Shannon plays Richard Kuklinski, and I think he does a solid job embodying his, I think, silently rugged and enigmatic persona. His voice down to just this flat, just flat sound, flat affect is really well done. The yeah. only criticism I have is that I thought that his depiction or representation of Kuklinski is that he was a bit robotic in his disposition and appearance. I don't get robotic from the real Kuklinski in all of his interviews. Stoic and cold, yes, but robotic, no. Too I mean, unlike- you, can't, you can't disco dance and be robotic like that. No, unless you're doing the, ro- unless you're doing the robot. No, there's <laughs> right. a scene in the yeah. movie where he's, he's in a disco with Richard Prange. And Richard Prangay, the uh, Mr. Yeah. Softy, is yeah. dancing as well. Oh, you wow. missed that. You didn't even catch yeah. that. All right. One. Well, okay. okay. Go back and watch it. That's All your right. homework. I have to do that. All right. So, um, again, I don't get robotic, but there were two unlikable parts to the film. Uh, number one is James Franco because James Franco, but also he played Marty Freeman, who's based on a real life murder. Kuklinski basically gave some guy thirty minutes to see if God would descend to help him, and then ended up killing him anyway. Oh. And then Chris Evans' depiction of Robert Prangy, he's kind of more like fast-talking, which yeah. was strange and tried to have a Jersey accent. But I think he was really offbeat and quirky. That added dimension to his character, at least. What do you think? That I didn't know. So I'm just like picturing Captain America now doing this. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll watch anything with Michael. I mean, if I, yeah, I haven't watched this, but I will. I, I will watch anything with Michael Shannon in it, though. Um, and, you know, he gets typecast a lot because he has like a very distinct look. But it's like that look that I think serves him well for a role like this. Way more believable and better cast than fucking Johnny Depp in that Whitey Bulger movie. Did you see that? It's called Black Mass. And no, I Johnny Depp it. plays Whitey Bulger. I mean, I haven't I, watched it yet. I don't see it. All right. No, well, I met Johnny Depp once. You met Johnny Depp. Once. I have met Johnny Depp. Oh, how yeah. was he? Very nice. Very down to earth. Oh, very right. quiet. Um, yeah, totally cool. All right. Totally cool. Jack Sparrow. Uh, yeah, I met Jack Sparrow way before. Actually, it was on the set of Donnie Brasco. Oh. Al Pacino That's was there. exactly where the fuck Drew <laughs> Hudson would be hanging out on the set of Donnie Brasco. <laughs> I'm not going to even ask. Actually, I know. no, I was there because uh, they were just filming a, in the as area. As a consultant. Just wanted to make sure they were doing it accurately. Yeah, as a consultant Drew at Hudson's the time. Like, yeah, you know, I would, I would walk this way a little bit more. Think a little, <laughs> Listen, little more they don't know who I am. They don't know what I do on the they, outside. They feel it. They, can, they, they feel it. They don't know what I do on the, out, on the outside. That's prison <laughs> no, talk. I'm giving myself away. That's prison talk. No. <laughs> Listen, yeah, I was Kuklinski's cellmate. That's how I got all this, uh, the details. No, back when. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, No, I was actually on, I was in the neighborhood when they were filming Donnie Brasco, and I saw glimpses of um, Al Pacino, and then I saw Johnny Depp, and he was really nice, and he went to his trailer, and he was sitting on the steps of, like, just right outside of his trailer, and I just walked up to him to say hi, or can I have an autograph for someone else, and he's like, yeah, sure, and then somebody's going to take a picture of us. And I sat down right next to him on his trailer steps. So it's me and Johnny Depp. Yeah. That's it. I need to see the picture for proof. <laughs> uh, it was many, many years ago with I young need Drew. I picture for proof. 100%. For sure. So switching gears. Wait, I can I also just, I have to go yeah, back and go say ahead. that either your biographical documentary you're going to make or your, uh, about Pacino <laughs> will be called Glimpses of Al Pacino. 
or that could even just be the name of your memoirs, Glimpses of Al Pacino, the Drew Hudson story. I think so. I think that's really good. You can you can be my ghostwriter for that. So um, speaking of which, Michael Shannon, a really talented actor, do you know what one of my favorite films of all time is starring Michael Shannon? No, but I bet you're going to tell me. Nocturnal Animals. Oh, that was a by good Tom one. Ford. I love that. True story. Drew told me to watch Nocturnal Animals with Mrs. Did Chambers. You? We did. You did. And I did not. I told Drew. You I didn't did like not, it. No, I loved it, but I did oh. not get until about forty-five minutes to an hour into the movie what the movie was actually about. And then once I understood what the movie was about, I was like, "Oh, this is a real good fucking movie." But before that, I was like, yeah, this "It's is a fun. story within a story." I yeah. want the film poster framed. Former English major just missed that one. Right I right know. Over, right right over get, my hot dog. That's hat. what you get for English majors. I'm not going to tell you what I majored in at one time, but. You know, there's so much uh, mystery surrounding much. Drew Hudson. So, so nonetheless, to wrap this up, yeah. definitely watch it if you haven't. So H, go and watch Homework. Iceman from 2012. Right. Homework you didn't the do. The Iceman Killeth. The Iceman Killeth and Cometh and Killeth. And uh, also for those of you who haven't watched the film, go watch it. I do recommend it. And also Nocturnal Animals because that's a Drew favorite. That's so right. I'm going to share Drew that with favorite. you. Drew Film Club. It's going to be a whole spin-off <laughs> series. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Yes. Sparkling as always. Thank you for joining <laughs> us. And we'll see you next time on Severed. Once again, we were your hosts, Harry Chambers and Drew Hudson. You can email us at severedpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash severedpodcast or on Instagram at severed underscore podcast. Logo art for the show was done by Drew Hudson. The theme song and other music is composed by me, Harry Chambers. I also record and edit the show. The show concept, researching, and lead writing is done by Drew Hudson. And our producer is Rogue Media Network. Thank you.